Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 34 James Crawley's Pipe is Put Out The amiable behavior of Mr. Crawley and Lady Jane highly flattered Miss Briggs, as did a countess's card left personally for her. She put it away in her workbox amongst her most cherished treasures. What could Lady Southdown mean by leaving you a card, I wonder, Miss Briggs, said Miss Crawley. The companion explained how she had met Mr. Crawley walking with his fiancée the day before. She told how kind and gentle-looking the lady was, and what a plain dress she had, and described her from the bonnet down to the boots with female accuracy. Miss Crawley was pining for society, so Pitt Crawley was graciously invited to come and see his aunt. He came bringing Lady Southdown and her daughter. The dowager did not say a word about the state of Miss Crawley's soul, but talked discreetly about the weather and the war, and above all, about doctors, quacks, and the particular merits of Dr. Podgers. During their interview, Pitt Crawley made a great diplomatic stroke. When Lady Southdown was calling Napoleon a monster, a coward, and a tyrant not fit to live, Pitt Crawley suddenly spoke up in his favor. He described Napoleon at Paris, at the Peace of Amiens, when he, Pitt Crawley, had the gratification of meeting the great Mr. Fox, an admirable statesman who had always had the highest opinion of the Emperor. And he spoke indignantly of the faithless conduct of the Allies towards Bonaparte, who, after giving himself graciously up to their mercy, was sent to a cruel banishment, while a bigoted popish rabble tyrannized over France in his stead. This orthodox horror of Romer's superstition saved Pitt Crawley in Lady Southdown's opinion, whilst his admiration for Fox and Napoleon raised him immeasurably in Miss Crawley's eyes. A true Whig, Miss Crawley had been in opposition all through the war, and though, to be sure, the Emperor's downfall did not much agitate the old lady, yet when Pitt praised her idols, he spoke to her heart— and advanced in her favor. "'And what do you think, my dear?' Miss Crawley said to Lady Jane, for whom she had taken a liking at first sight, as she always did for pretty and modest young people, though it must be owned her affections cooled as rapidly as they rose. Lady Jane blushed and said that she did not understand politics, which she left to wiser heads. But though Mamma was no doubt correct, Mr. Crawley had spoken beautifully. And when the ladies were leaving, Miss Crawley hoped Lady Southdown would be so kind as to send her Lady Jane sometimes, if she could be spared to come and console a poor, sick, lonely old woman.' 
This promise was granted, and they separated in friendship. Don't let Lady Southdown come again, Pitt, said the old lady. She is stupid and pompous, but bring that nice, good-natured little Jane as often as you please. Pitt promised to do so. He did not tell the Countess of Southdown of his aunt's opinion. Her ladyship thought that she had made a most delightful and majestic impression on Miss Crawley. And so Lady Jane became a pretty constant visitor to Miss Crawley, accompanied her in her drives, and solaced many of her evenings. She was so naturally good and soft that even Firkin was not jealous of her, and the gentle Briggs thought Miss Crawley was less cruel to her when kind Lady Jane was by. Miss Crawley was charming to Lady Jane, telling her a thousand anecdotes about her youth and talking to her in a very different way to that in which he had talked to Rebecca. Lady Jane repaid Miss Crawley with artless sweetness and friendship. In the autumn, Lady Jane would sit in Miss Crawley's drawing room, singing little songs and hymns while the sun was setting and the sea was roaring on the beach. The old spinster used to wake up when these ditties ceased and ask for more. As for Briggs, she shed tears of happiness as she pretended to knit. Pitt, meanwhile, in the dining room, with a pamphlet on the corn laws, sipped Madeira, built castles in the air, thought himself a fine fellow, and felt himself more in love with Jane than he had been any time these seven years. "'I wish, my love, I could get somebody to play piquet with me,' Miss Crawley said one night. "'Poor Briggs can no more play than an owl. She is so stupid. "'And I think I should sleep better if I had my game.' "'At this Lady Jane blushed to the tips of her ears and said, "'Miss Crawley, I can play a little. I used to play with poor dear Papa.' "'Oh, come and kiss me, you dear good little soul,' cried Miss Crawley in an ecstasy. And in this occupation, Mr. Pitt found them when he came upstairs with his pamphlet. This did not escape the attention of the Crawleys at the rectory. Mrs. Bute had friends in Brighton who informed her of all that passed at Miss Crawley's house. Pitt was there more and more.' He did not come to the hall for months, while his abominable old father abandoned himself to rum and water, and the odious society of the Horrocks family. Pitt's success made the rector's family furious, and Mrs. Bute regretted so insulting Miss Briggs and Firkin that she had not a single informant in Miss Crawley's household. It was all Bute's collarbone she said. If that had not broke, I never would have left her. It was you that frightened her, Bute interposed. You're a clever woman, but you've got a devil of a temper, and you're a screw with your money, Barbara. You'd have been in jail, Bute, if I had not kept your money. I know, my dear, said the rector, good-naturedly. You are a clever woman, but you manage too well, you know. What the deuce can she find in Pitt Crawley? He has not pluck enough to say boo to a goose. I remember when Rawdon used to flog him round the stables, and Pitt would go howling home to his mouth. <laughs> Why, either of my boys would whop him with one hand. 
Jim says he's remembered at Oxford as Miss Crawley still. I say, Barbara. What? I say, why not send Jim over to Brighton to see if he can do anything with the old lady? He's very near getting his degree, you know. He's been failed twice. Well, so was I. But he's had an Oxford education. He's a handsome fella. Let's put him on the old woman, eh? Jim might go down and see her, certainly, his wife said, adding with a sigh. Oh, if he could only get one of the girls into the house. But he could never endure them because they are not pretty. Those unfortunate and well-educated women were in the drawing-room, where they were thrumming away, with hard fingers, an elaborate piece on the piano. Indeed, they were at music, or the backboard, or geography, or history, all day long. But what use are all these accomplishments in Vanity Fair to girls who are short, poor, plain, and have a bad complexion? Mrs. Butte could think of nobody but the curate to take one of them off her hands. Mrs. Butte did not predict much good from the sending of her son, James, as an ambassador, nor did the young fellow himself expect much pleasure from his mission. But he was consoled by the thought that possibly the old lady would give him some handsome sum on leaving, which would pay a few bills at the start of the next Oxford term. So he travelled by the coach from Southampton to Brighton with his portmanteau, his favourite bulldog towser, and an immense basket of garden produce from the dear rectory folks to dear Miss Crawley. Thinking it was too late to disturb the invalid lady on the first night of his arrival, he put up at an inn and did not visit Miss Crawley until late afternoon next day. James Crawley when his aunt had last seen him, was a gawky lad, at that uncomfortable age when the voice varies between an unearthly treble and a bass, when boys are seen to shave furtively with their sister's scissors, and the sight of other young women produces terror in them, when the great hands and ankles protrude a long way from the garments which have grown too tight. James, then a hobbity-hoy, was now become a young man, and had acquired the polish which is gained by living in a fast set at a small college, and contracting debts, and being failed, and rusticated. He was a handsome lad, however, when he presented himself to his aunt, and good looks always earn the fickle old lady's favour. Nor did his awkwardness take away from it. She was pleased with these healthy tokens of the young gentleman's ingenuousness. He said he had come down for a couple of days to see a man from his college and, and to pay my respects to you, ma'am, and my father and mother, hope you are well. Pitt was in the room with Miss Crawley when the lad was announced, and looked very blank. The old lady had plenty of humour and enjoyed her correct nephew's perplexity. She asked after all the people at the rectory with interest, and said she was thinking of paying them a visit. She told the lad he was very much improved, and that it was a pity his sisters had not some of his good looks, and finding that he had taken a room at an hotel, 
would not hear of his staying there, but bade Mr. Bowles send for Mr. James Crawley's things instantly. And Bowles, she added, with great graciousness, you will have the goodness to pay Mr. James's bill. She flung Pitt a look of arch triumph, which made him almost choke with envy. She had never yet invited him to stay under her roof, and here was a young whippersnapper who at first sight was made welcome. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Bowles, with a bow. "'What hotel is it, sir?' "'Oh, damn!' said young James, in some alarm. "'I'll go.' "'What?' said Miss Crowley. "'The Tom Cribb's arms,' said James, blushing deeply. Miss Crowley burst out laughing. Mr. Bowles gave one abrupt guffaw. Pitt only smiled. "'I didn't know any better.' said James, looking down. I've never been here before. It was the coachman told me. The fact is that on the Southampton coach, James Crawley had met a boxer, the Tutbury Pet, who was coming to Brighton to make a match with the rotting Dean Fibber, and enchanted by the Pet's conversation, he had passed the evening with him and his friends at the inn in question. Go and settle the bill, Bowles said Miss Crawley, with a wave of her hand, and bring it to me. There's a, a, a little dog, said James, looking frightfully guilty. I'd best go for him. He, he bites footmen's calves. All the party laughed, even Briggs and Lady Jane, who was sitting mute. To punish her elder nephew, Miss Crawley persisted in being gracious to the young student. There were no limits to her kindness. She insisted that James should accompany her in her drive, and paraded him solemnly up and down the cliff in her barouche. During the drive, she quoted Italian and French poetry to the poor bewildered lad, and said she was sure he would gain a gold medal and be a senior wrangler. <laughs> Laughed James, encouraged by these compliments. Senior wrangler, indeed. <laughs> That's at the other shop. What is the other shop, my dear child? said the lady. Oh, Cambridge, not Oxford, said the scholar with a knowing air. Just then, there appeared on the cliff in a tax cart, drawn by a bang-up pony, his friends, the Tutbury Pet and the Rotting Dame Fibber, with three other gentlemen who saluted poor James as he sat in the carriage. This incident damped his spirits, and he did not utter another word during the journey. On his return, he found his room prepared and his bag there, and might have noticed that Mr. Bowles looked grave. But the thought of Mr. Bowles did not enter his head. He was deploring his dreadful predicament, staying in a house full of old women jabbering French and Italian and talking poetry to him. At dinner, James appeared choking in a white neckcloth and had the honour of handing my lady Jane downstairs. He did not talk much over dinner, but he made a point of asking all the ladies to drink wine and accepted Mr. Crawley's offer of champagne, consuming most of the bottle which Mr. Bowles was ordered to produce in his honour. After the ladies had withdrawn and the two cousins were left together, Pitt became very friendly. He asked after James's career and prospects. 
hoped heartily he would get on, and was frank and amiable. James's tongue unloosed with the port, and he told his cousin about his life, his debts, his troubles, and his rows with the proctors, filling his glass from the bottles before him, and flying from port to Madeira with joyous activity. "'My aunt is pleased when people do as they like in her house,' said Mr. Crawley. "'This is Liberty Hall, James, and you can't do Miss Crawley a greater kindness than to do as you please, and ask for what you will. Miss Crawley is liberal. She is a Republican in principle and despises rank or title. <laughs> "'Why are you going to marry an earl's daughter?' said James. Oh, my dear friend, it is not poor Lady Jane's fault that she is well-born, Pitt replied with a courtly air. She cannot help being a lady. Oh, as for that, said Jim, there's nothing like old blood, Dammy. <laughs> I'm none of your radicals. I know what it is to be a gentleman, Dammy. See the chaps in a boat race. Look at the fellas in a fight. Aye, look at a dog killing rats. Which is it wins? The good-blooded ones. Oh, get some more port, bold old boy. Oh, what was I saying? I think you were speaking of dogs killing rats, Pitt remarked mildly, handing his cousin the decanter. Oh, killing rats, was I? <laughs> well, Pitt, are you a sporting man? Do you want to see a dog as can kill a rat? "'Then come down with me to Castle Street Mews, "'and I'll show you such a bull terrier. Oh, boo!' cried James, laughing at his own absurdity. "'You don't care. "'I'm blessed if you know the difference between a dog and a duck.' "'No, you were talking about blood,' Pitt continued, "'with increased blandness. Oh, "'Here's the fresh bottle.' "'Blood's the word.' said James, gulping the port down. Nothing like blood, sir, in horses, dogs, and men. Why, only last term, just before I was rusticated, I mean, just before I, just before I had the measles, <laughs> there was me and Bob Ringwood, Lord Sinkbar's son, having a beer at the Bell at Blenheim when the Banbury bargeman offered to fight either of us for a bowl of punch. Well, I couldn't. My arm was in a sling. A brute of a mare had fell with me at the Abingdon hunt. But Bob had his coat off at once. He stood up to the Banbury man for three minutes and polished him off in four rounds easy. Blood, sir. All blood. You're not drinking, James, Pitt said. In my time at Oxford, the men passed around the bottle a little quicker than you young fellows seem to do. Oh, come, come, said James, winking at his cousin. No jokes, old boy. No trying it on with me. You want to trot me out, but it's no go. In vino veritas, old boy. I wish my aunt would send down some of this to the governor. It's a precious good tap. You had better ask her, Machiavel continued, or make the best of it now. And he tossed back nearly a thimbleful of wine with an immense flourish of his glass. At the rectory, when the bottle of port was opened after dinner, honest James commonly had a couple of glasses. 
but as his father grew very sulky if he had more, the good lad generally refrained and subsided either into the lady's current wine or to some private gin and water in the stables with the coachman. At Oxford, the quantity of wine was unlimited, but the quality was inferior. But when quantity and quality united, as at his aunt's house, James showed that he could appreciate them indeed. He hardly needed his cousin's encouragement to drain the second bottle. When the time came for coffee, however, and for a return to the ladies, the young gentleman relapsed into surly timidity, saying no more than yes and no, scowling at Lady Jane and upsetting his cup. He yawned in a pitiable manner, and his presence threw a damper upon the modest proceedings, for Miss Crawley and Lady Jane at their piquet, and Miss Briggs at her work, felt that his eyes were wildly fixed on them, and were uneasy under that maudlin look. "'He seems a very silent, awkward, bashful lad,' said Miss Crawley to Mr. Pitt later. "'He is more communicative in men's society than with ladies,' he dryly replied, perhaps rather disappointed that the wine had not made Jim talk more. James spent part of the next morning in writing home to his mother a most flourishing account of his reception by Miss Crawley. But, ah, he little knew what evils the day would bring, and how short his reign of favor was to be.' Jim had forgotten about something that had taken place at the Cribs Arms the night before he had come to his aunt's house. He had treated the Tutbury Champion and the Rottingdean Man and their friends to the refreshment of gin and water, so that no less than eighteen glasses at eightpence per glass were charged in Mr. James Crawley's bill. It was not the money— but the quantity of gin which told fatal against poor James' character when the butler, Mr. Bowles, went down to pay his bill. The landlord, fearing lest the account should be refused, swore solemnly that the young gent had consumed personally every drop of the liquor. Bowles paid the bill and showed it on his return to Firkin, who was shocked at the frightful amount of gin. She took the bill to Miss Briggs, who thought it her duty to mention it to Miss Crawley. Had he drunk a dozen bottles of claret, the old spinster could have pardoned him. Mr. Fox drank claret. Gentlemen drank claret. But eighteen glasses of gin consumed among boxers in a pothouse. Ah, it was an odious crime. Everything went against the lad. He came home perfumed from the stables, where he had been to pay his dog Towser a visit, and when he took Towser out for an airing, he met Miss Crawley and her wheezy Blenheim spaniel, which Towser would have eaten up had not the Blenheim fled, squealing to the protection of Miss Briggs, while James stood laughing. This day, too, the unlucky boy's modesty had forsaken him. He was lively and facetious at dinner. He leveled one or two jokes against Pitt Crawley, 
He drank as much wine as upon the previous day, and in the drawing-room began to entertain the ladies with some choice Oxford stories. He described the different pugilistic qualities of the boxers Molyneux and the Dutch Sam, offered playfully to give Lady Jane odds upon the Tutbury pet against the Rottingdean man, and then proposed to back himself against his cousin Pitt Crawley, either with or without boxing gloves. "'And that's a fair offer, my buck,' he said, with a loud laugh, slapping Pitt on the shoulder." "'And my father will go halves in the bet. <laughs> the engaging youth nodded knowingly and pointed his thumb at Pitt Crawley in a jocular and exulting manner. Pitt was not altogether pleased, perhaps, but not unhappy. Poor Jim had his laugh and staggered across the room with his aunt's candle when the old lady moved to retire and offered to kiss her with the blandest tipsy smile. Then he went upstairs to his own bedroom, perfectly satisfied with himself and with a pleased notion that his aunt's money would be left to him in preference to all the rest of the family. Once up in the bedroom, he was attracted to the window by the romantic scene of the moonlight on the sea, and thought he would enjoy it while smoking. Nobody would smell the tobacco if he opened the window and kept his head and pipe in the fresh air. This he did, but poor Jim had forgotten that his door was open, so that the breeze blowing in made a fine draught. The clouds of tobacco were carried downstairs and arrived with undiminished fragrance to Miss Crawley and Miss Briggs. The pipe of tobacco finished the business, and the Butte Crawleys never knew how many thousand pounds it cost them. Firkin rushed downstairs to Bowles, who was reading out the fire and the frying pan, to his assistant in a loud and ghostly voice. The dreadful secret was told by Firkin with so frightened a look that for the first moment Mr. Bowles thought that robbers were in the house. When made aware of the facts, however, Mr. Bowles rushed upstairs three steps at a time to enter James' apartment, calling in a voice stifled with alarm, "'Mr. James! Mr. James! For God's sake, sir! Stop that pipe! Oh, Mr. James! What have you done?' Mrs. Can't abide him. With that, Bulls threw the pipe out of the window. Mrs. Neaton's, oh, Mrs. Neaton's smoke, said James with a laugh, and thought the whole matter an excellent joke. But his feelings were very different in the morning, when Mr. Bowles, young man, who brought him his hot water to shave that beard, which he was so anxiously expecting, handed over a note in the handwriting of Miss Briggs. "'Dear sir,' it said, "'Miss Crawley has passed an exceedingly disturbed night, owing to the shocking manner in which the house has been polluted by tobacco. Miss Crawley regrets that she is too unwell to see you before you go, and above all that she ever induced you to remove from the whale-house.' and above all that she ever induced you to remove from the alehouse, where she is sure you will be much more comfortable during the rest of your stay at Brighton. And here 
honest James' career as a candidate for his aunt's favor ended. He had, in fact, and without knowing it, done what he threatened to do. He had fought his cousin Pitt with the gloves. Where, meanwhile, was he who had once been first favorite for this race? Rawdon and Becky were reunited after Waterloo, and were passing the winter of 1815 at Paris in great splendor and gaiety. Rebecca was a good economist, and the price poor Josh Sedley had paid for her two horses was enough to keep their little establishment afloat for a year. There was no need to sell the pistols, or the gold dressing case, or the cloak lined with sable. Becky had it made into a pelisse, in which she rode in the Bois de Boulogne to the admiration of all. You should have seen her when she unsewed herself and let out of her dress all those watches, banknotes, and valuables which she had secreted in the wadding. Tufto was charmed and Rawdon, delighted, roared with laughter and swore that she was better than any play. And when she described how she had outwitted Joss, his delight reached a pitch of quite insane enthusiasm. He believed in his wife as much as the French soldiers in Napoleon. Her success in Paris was remarkable. All the French ladies voted her charming. She spoke their language admirably. She adopted their grace, their liveliness, their manner. Her husband was stupid, certainly, but all English are stupid, and he was the heir of the rich Miss Crawley. Why, wrote a great lady to Miss Crawley in French, why does not our dear Miss come to her nephew and niece in Paris? All the world talks of the charming mistress and her beauty. Yes, we see in her the grace, the charm, the wit of our dear friend Miss Crawley. The king took notice of her yesterday at the Tuileries. How interesting and pretty this fair creature looks, surrounded by the homage of the men, and so soon to be a mother. To hear her speak of you would bring tears to the eyes of ogres. How she loves you! How we all love our admirable Miss Crawley. Sadly, this letter did not advance Mrs. Becky's interest with her relative. On the contrary, the old spinster was furious when she found Rebecca had used her name to get an entree into Parisian society. She dictated to Briggs an angry answer in English, warning the public to beware of Mrs. Rawdon Crawley as a most artful and dangerous person. But as Madame, her correspondent, did not understand English, she merely told Mrs. Rawdon that she had received a charming letter full of benevolent things, and Rebecca began to hope that Miss Crawley would relent. Meanwhile, she was the gayest and most admired of Englishwomen. All the world was at Paris during this famous winter. Famous warriors rode by her carriage or crowded her modest little box at the opera. Rawdon was in the highest spirits. There were no debt collectors in Paris as yet. There were parties every day. Play was plentiful and his luck good. 
Tufto, perhaps, was sulky. Mrs. Tufto had come to Paris, and besides, there were a score of generals now round Becky's chair. Lady Bearacres and stupid English females writhed with anguish at the success of the little upstart Becky. But she had all the men on her side. So, in fates, pleasure, and prosperity, the winter of 1815-16 passed. In the early spring of 1816, the journal contained the following announcement. On the 26th of March, to the lady of Lieutenant Colonel Crawley of the Lifeguards Green, a son and heir. This event was copied into the London papers from which Miss Briggs read the statement to Miss Crawley at Brighton. The news, though no surprise, caused a crisis in the affairs of the Crawley family. The spinster's rage rose to its height, sending instantly for Pitt, her nephew, and for Lady Southdown, she requested an immediate celebration of the marriage which had been so long pending between the two families and she announced that she would give the young couple a thousand a year during her lifetime, at the end of which the bulk of her property would be settled upon her nephew and her dear niece, Lady Jane Crawley. So they were married. Pitt would have liked to take a honeymoon tour with his bride, but the old lady's attachment to Lady Jane was so strong that she could not part with her favourite, Pitt and his wife came, therefore, and lived with Miss Crawley, and, greatly to the annoyance of poor Pitt, Lady Southdown, from her neighbouring house, reigned over the whole family, Miss Crawley, Briggs, and all. She pitilessly dosed them with her tracts and her medicine. She dismissed Kramer, and soon stripped Miss Crawley of even the semblance of authority. The poor soul grew so timid that she stopped bullying Briggs and clung to her niece. Peace to thee, kind and selfish, vain and generous old heathen. We shall say thee no more. Let us hope that Lady Jane supported her kindly and led her with a gentle hand out of the busy struggle of Vanity Fair. Chapter 35 Widow and Mother At the glorious news of Waterloo, all England thrilled with triumph and fear, for then came the list of the wounded and the slain. Who can tell the dread with which that catalogue was read? Exultation and gratitude were followed by sickening dismay. Anybody who looks back at the newspapers of the time must, even now, feel this breathless pause of expectation. The news which the Gazette brought to the Osbournes gave them a dreadful shock. The girls indulged in unrestrained grief. The gloom-stricken old father was still more weighed down by sorrow. He strove to think that a judgment was on the boy for his disobedience. He dared not own that the severity of the sentence frightened him, and that its fulfilment had come too soon after his curses. Sometimes a shuddering terror struck him, as if he had been the author of his son's doom. 
There was no hope of reconciliation now. George stood on the other side of the gulf impassable, haunting his parent with sad eyes. He remembered him once in a fever when everyone thought the lad was dying, and he lay on his bed speechless. Oh, good God, how the father clung to the doctor with sickening anxiety. What a weight of grief was off his mind when the lad recovered. But now there was no help or cure. Above all, there were no humble words to soothe outraged vanity and poisoned angry blood. It is hard to say which pang tore the proud father's heart most keenly, that his son should have gone out of the reach of his forgiveness, or that he could never receive any apology. The stern old man never mentioned his son's name to his daughters, but ordered the elder to go into mourning. All entertainments were put off. No communications were made to his future son-in-law, whose marriage day had been fixed. But Mr. Osborne's appearance prevented Mr. Bullock from asking about the wedding. Mr. Osborne remained shut in his study. After about three weeks, Sir William Dobbin called at Mr. Osborne's house with a very pale and agitated face and insisted upon seeing him. Ushered into his room, Sir William produced a letter with a large red seal. "'My son, Major Dobbin,' the alderman said with some hesitation, "'sent me a letter which arrived today. "'My son's letter contains one for you, Osborne.' The alderman placed the letter on the table, and Osborne stared at him for a moment in silence. His looks frightened the messenger, who hurried away without another word. The letter was in George's well-known bold handwriting. It was the one which he had written before daybreak on the 16th of June. The great red seal was emblazoned with the sham coat of arms which Osborne had taken from the peerage. The very seal that had impressed it had been robbed from George's dead body as it lay on the battlefield. The father knew nothing of this, but sat and looked at the letter in terrified vacancy. He almost fell when he went to open it. The poor boy's letter did not say much. He had been too proud to acknowledge the tenderness he felt. He only said that on the eve of a great battle he wished to bid his father farewell and solemnly to implore his good offices for the wife and perhaps the child whom he left behind. He confessed that his extravagance had already wasted a large part of his mother's little fortune. He thanked his father for his former generous conduct, and he promised him that whether he fell on the field or survived it, he would act in a manner worthy of the name of George Osborne. His English habit, pride, awkwardness, perhaps, had prevented him from saying more. His father could not see the kiss George had placed on the address of his letter. Mr. Osborne dropped it with the bitterest pang of balked affection and revenge. His son was still beloved and unforgiven. About two months afterwards, however, 
As the young ladies of the family went to church with their father, they remarked how he took a different seat from usual, and that he looked up at the wall over their heads. The young women gazed in that direction and saw an elaborate monument upon the wall, with Britannia weeping over an urn, and a broken sword, and a couchant lion, signs that the sculpture was in honor of a dead warrior. Under the memorial were emblazoned the pompous Osborne arms, and the inscription, Sacred to the memory of George Osborne, who fell on the 18th of June, 1815, aged 28 years, while fighting for his king and country in the glorious victory of Waterloo. Dolce et decorum es pro patria mori. The sight of that stone agitated the sisters so much that Miss Maria had to leave the church. The congregation made way respectfully for the sobbing girls and pitied the stern old father. Will he forgive Mrs. George? The girls wondered. Their anxiety that Amelia might be recognized as one of the family was increased towards the end of the autumn by their father's announcement that he was going abroad. He did not say where, but they knew at once that he would go to Belgium. And Amelia was still in Brussels. They had news of her from Lady Dobbin. Our honest Captain Dobbin had been promoted to major after the battle, and the brave O'Dowd, who had distinguished himself greatly, was a colonel and companion of the bath. Very many of the brave regiment were still at Brussels in the autumn, recovering from their wounds. The city was a vast military hospital for months after the great battles and as men and officers began to recover, the gardens and public places swarmed with maimed warriors, old and young, who fell to gambling and gaiety and love-making, as people of Vanity Fair will do. Mr. Osborne easily found some of his son's regiment. He knew their uniform, and the day after his arrival at Brussels, as he came out from his hotel facing the park, he saw a soldier in the well-known outfit reposing on a stone bench and went and sat down by him, trembling. "'Were you in Captain Osborne's company?' he said, and added, after a pause, "'He was my son, sir.' The man was not of the captain's company, but he touched his cap sadly and respectfully to the haggard gentleman. "'The whole army didn't contain a finer officer,' the man said. "'The sergeant of the captain's company could tell his honour anything he wanted to know about the regiment's actions. But his honour had seen Major Dobbin, no doubt, the brave captain's great friend, and Mrs. Osborne, who was here too, and had been very bad. They say she was out of her mind for six weeks or more. But your honour knows all about that.' Osborne put a guinea into the soldier's hand and told him he should have another if he would bring the sergeant to the Hôtel du Parc, a promise which very soon brought the officer. In the sergeant's company, Osborne travelled to Waterloo and Quatre-Bras, 
a journey which thousands of his countrymen were then taking. He took the sergeant in his carriage and went through both fields under his guidance. He saw the road where the regiment marched into action on the 16th and the slope down which they drove the French cavalry. There was the spot where the noble captain cut down the French officer who was grappling with the young ensign for the colors. Along this road they retreated on the next day, and here was the bank at which the regiment bivouacked under the rain on the night of the 17th. Farther on was the position which they held during the day, sheltering under the bank from the furious French cannonade. And when the English line received the order to advance, it was here that the captain, cheering and rushing down the hill, waving his sword, received a shot and fell dead. Major Dobbin took back the captain's body to Brussels, the sergeant said in a low voice, and had him buried, as your honour knows. Relic hunters were screaming round the pair as the soldier told his story, offering mementos of the fight for sale. Osborne had already seen his son's burial place. Indeed, he had driven there immediately after his arrival at Brussels. George's body lay in the pretty burial ground of Laken, in the unconsecrated corner of the garden, separated by a little hedge from the temples and flowers under which the Roman Catholic dead reposed. It seemed a humiliation to old Osborne to think that his son, an English gentleman and captain, should not be found worthy to lie in ground where mere foreigners were buried. Old Osborne did not speculate much upon his own mingled selfish feelings. He firmly believed that everything he did was right, and that he ought to have his own way and his hatred rushed out, armed and poisonous against any opposition. He was proud of his hatred, always to be right, always to trample forward and never to doubt. Are not these the great qualities with which dullness takes the lead in the world? After the drive to Waterloo, as Mr. Osborne's carriage was nearing the gates of the city at sunset, they met another barouche, in which were a couple of ladies and a gentleman, with an officer riding alongside. Osborne gave a start. It was Amelia, with the lame young ensign, and her faithful friend, Mrs. O'Dowd. It was Amelia. But how changed from the fresh and comely girl Osborne knew. Her face was white and thin. Her eyes were fixed and looking nowhere. They stared blank in the face of Osborne as the carriages passed each other. But she did not know him, nor did he recognize her until, looking up, he saw Dobbin riding by her, and then he knew who it was. Oh, how he hated her! He did not know how much until he saw her there. Tell the scoundrel to drive on quick, he shouted with an oath to the lackey on the box. A minute afterwards, a horse came clattering up behind Osborne's carriage. It was Dobbin. Amelia had not even noticed him ride off. She was looking into the distance, 
to the woods where George had marched away. Mr. Osborne! Mr. Osborne! cried Dobbin, and he held out his hand. Osborne made no move to take it, but shouted out with another curse to his servant to drive on. Dobbin laid his hand on the carriage side. I will see you, sir, he said. I have a message for you. From that woman, said Osborne, fiercely. No, from your son. At this, Osborne fell back into the corner of his carriage, and Dobbin rode close behind it through the town until they reached Mr. Osborne's hotel. There he followed Osborne up to his apartments. "'Pray, have you any commands for me, Captain Dobbin? "'Or, I beg your pardon, Major Dobbin, "'since better men than you are dead and you step into their shoes?' "'said Mr. Osborne in a sarcastic tone. "'Better men are dead,' Dobbin replied. "'I want to speak to you about one.' "'Make it short, sir,' said the other with an oath, scowling.' I am here as his closest friend, and the executor of his will. Are you aware how small his means are, and of the straitened circumstances of his widow? I don't know his widow, sir, Osborne said. Let her go back to her father. But Dobbin was determined to remain in good temper, and went on. Do you know, sir, Mrs. Osborne's condition? Her life and almost her very reason have been shaken by the blow which has fallen on her. It is very doubtful whether she will rally. There is a chance left for her, however, and it is about this that I came to speak to you. She will be a mother soon. Will you visit the parents' offence upon the child's head, or will you forgive the child for poor George's sake?' Osborne broke out into a rhapsody of self-praise for his own conduct and imprecations against the undutifulness of George. George had rebelled against him wickedly. He had died without confessing he was wrong. Let him take the consequences of his folly. As for himself, Mr. Osborne was a man of his word. He had sworn never to speak to that woman or to recognize her as his son's wife. He concluded with an oath, and that's what I will stick to till the last day of my life. There was no hope from that quarter then. The widow must live on her slender pittance, or such aid as Joss could give her. I might tell her, and she would not heed it, thought Dobbin sadly, for the poor girl was stupefied by sorrow. "'Good and evil were alike indifferent to her. "'So indeed were friendship and kindness. "'She received them both uncomplainingly "'and relapsed into her grief. "'Suppose some twelve months after the above conversation "'to have passed in the life of our poor Amelia. "'She has spent the first portion of that time "'in a sorrow so profound and pitiable.' that we must draw back, shut gently the door of the dark chamber wherein she suffers, as those kind people did who nursed her through the first months of her pain. Then a day came, of almost terrified delight and wonder, 
when the poor widowed girl pressed a child upon her breast, a child with George's eyes, a little boy, as beautiful as a cherub. What a miracle it was! How she laughed and wept over it! How love and hope and prayer woke again in her bosom as the baby nestled there! She was safe. The doctors who had feared for her life or sanity could at last pronounce that both were secure. It was worth the long months of doubt and dread for her friends to see her eyes once more beaming tenderly upon them. Dobbin was one of them. It was he who brought her back to England, to her mother's house, when Mrs. O'Dowd was forced to leave and go with her colonel. To see Dobbin holding the infant, and to hear Amelia's laugh of triumph as she watched him, would have done any man good who had a sense of humour. William was the child's godfather, and exerted his ingenuity in the purchase of cups, spoons, and coral rattles and teething toys. How his mother nursed the babe, and lived upon him. How she would scarce allow any hand but her own to touch him. How she considered that the greatest favour she could confer upon Major Dobbin was to allow him to dandle the baby. Need not be told here. This child was her being. Her existence was a maternal caress. She enveloped him with love and worship. It was her life which the baby drank in from her bosom. Or night, and when alone, she had stealthy and intense raptures of motherly love, joys far higher and lower than reason, blind, beautiful devotions which only women's hearts know. William Dobbin mused upon this, and watched her heart, and if his love made him understand almost all the feelings in it, alas, he could see that there was no place there for him. And so, gently, he bore his fate, knowing it and content to bear it. I suppose Amelia's father and mother saw through the Major's intentions and were inclined to encourage him, for Dobbin visited their house daily and stayed for hours with them, or with the honest landlord, Mr. Clapp, and his family. He brought presents to everybody, almost every day. The landlord's little girl called him Major Sugarplums. She laughed one day when Major Sugarplums descended from his carriage with a wooden horse, a drum, a trumpet, and other toys for little Georgie, <laughs> who was scarcely six months old, and for whom these articles were entirely premature. The child was asleep. Hush! said Amelia, annoyed, perhaps, but smiling at the Major and his cargo of toys. "'Go downstairs,' said he to the little girl. "'I want to speak to Mrs. Osborne.' Amelia looked up, rather astonished, and laid down the infant on its bed. "'I am, I am come to say good-bye, Amelia,' said he, taking her hand gently. "'Good-bye?' And where are you going? she said, smiling. Send the letters to the agents, he said, 
They will forward them, for you will write to me, won't you? I shall be away a long time. I'll write to you about Georgie, she said. Oh, dear William, how good you have been to him and to me. Oh, look at him. Isn't he like an angel? The little hands of the sleeping child closed mechanically around the soldier's finger, and Amelia looked up in his face with bright maternal pleasure. The cruelest looks could not have wounded him more than that glance of kindness. He bent over the child and mother. He could not speak for a moment, and it was only with all his strength that he could force himself to say a God bless you. God bless you, said Amelia, and held up her face and kissed him. Hush, don't wake Georgie, she added, as William went to the door with heavy steps. She did not hear the cab wheels as he drove away. She was looking at the child, who was laughing in his sleep. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.